The orders to pick up camp and cross the Jordan have been given. Joshua now is focusing on the tasks ahead. But he faces this, this conundrum. He faces this problem. He faces this, this issue that he has to work through. He has no strategy for the conquest. All he knows is that God said, go take the hill. There's no strategy. He doesn't know how he's going to take Jericho. He doesn't know any of that yet. And so just consider the situation here. Just across the Jordan River stands their number one challenge directly in the way of their progress into the land. The Jordan River is between Joshua and Israel and the promised land. They're on one side of Jordan. They have to cross the Jordan. And right across Jordan is this city of Jericho. Massive walls. A well-defended garrison. Trained troops in residence in Jericho. And so Jericho was like nothing they had ever faced before. Israel, since coming out of Egypt in the past 40 years, they had not faced a a situation like this. And Jericho guards the primary road that goes from the Jordan uh, Rift Valley up to to the spine of the, the central hill country. So they have to go through Jericho. And when they cross the Jordan, kind of picture it here as you look at that map, crossing the Jordan River... The river's at flood stage. Once they cross that Jordan River, they would have a flooded river behind them and they would have Jericho in front of them. That could be a precarious situation for the children of Israel. So God is telling them to move forward, but with the challenges ahead, would that cause them to stall in fear? What I want us to understand tonight is that when God calls us to take the hill he's calling us to, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make, and that is either to respond in fear and act then in fear, or to respond in faith and act in faith. That's our choice. That's our choice. That was the choice that was before God's People And regardless of the obstacles, Joshua is courageously moving ahead. Why? Because he has divine assurance. He he knows God has told him that he has given them the hill, but he has no divine instructions beyond that. All he knows is that God has given them the hill. He doesn't know how to defeat Jericho. So he does the responsible thing. He does what every good general would do. He sends a team on a reconnaissance mission. He sends out some spies. You see, I think that what happens in chapter 2 is not the faithlessness of Joshua, as some say. I think that this is the wisdom of Joshua. I think that Joshua is being wise. He knows that God's given him the hill, but he doesn't, quite, he doesn't know what lies over there. And so they, they just need to take a look. And in the meantime, they're, they're seeking God. They're trying to develop a strategy. And I think there's a principle here. Listen to this principle. 
The principle is simply that faith in the Lord's provision should never lead to presuming on God's decrees or actions, our intuitive feelings, or on our wants and desires. What does faith do? Faith looks at the principles in scriptures that might be applicable and then prays for God's wisdom and guidance all while gathering information and facts that are needed for making wise decisions. Do you follow that? Right? That's how, we, that's how you take a hill in your own life. That's how we do it. We're to look at the principles of the Word of God. We're to pray for wisdom. And then we're to gather information. We're to gather facts. And so after we pray, we assess and we evaluate the situation where we are, where we need to go. God's calling on our lives, our gifts and talents, our weaknesses, our hindrances, our circumstances, and the, and the forces that we are facing. And so to pray without using the means that God has given us is almost as foolish as using the means without praying. Did you get that? You following me? Right? Just to rush ahead after praying without gathering facts can almost be as foolish as not praying at all. Pray and then gather information. That is what is going on here in Joshua chapter 2. Both facts and faith need to be combined together in all of our battles. Then you take that information, the biblical principles that you've gathered, the facts that are known, and then you establish plans and goals and objections along with priorities. Then you move ahead attacking the problem accordingly. And you start with the things that are most important and you work on them one by one, all while resting on God's intervention and God's direction and God's provision. Proverbs chapter 16 says this, It says the reflections of the heart belong to mankind, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established. You see, if the Lord wants to intervene in some miraculous way as he does with Jericho, well, well, that's great. But we should never presume on God's ways. Amen? We should never presume on God doing a miracle. We can can certainly seek him to do that. We can certainly look to him and depend on him for that. But we can never presume on God's ways. Why? Because God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so I think what we have in Joshua chapter 2 is just simply Joshua's common sense approach. He has complete faith in God's promises. He's responding in faith and acting in faith, but he's still seeking God. He's still trying to gather information and develop a strategy. So tonight from Joshua chapter two, what we see is that they move from fear to faith. They begin taking the first steps past their fear, their past fear, and moving with faith, forward in faith to take the hill. And as they do this, what we're going to see tonight is that God supports their faith, God sustains their faith, God stretches their faith, and the faith 
of others as we're going to see here in a minute. So right here in this chapter, we see three tools that God often uses to strengthen our faith whenever he calls us to take the hill that he's calling us to. So notice them with me. Notice them with me. First of all, number one, when moving forward to take the hill God calls us to, God uses unsuspecting people to support our faith. Well, verse number one tells us that Joshua, after he sends the spies into Jericho, it tells us there, he says, go into, go in, go into the land and especially into Jericho. So it says at the end of verse one, so they left and they come to the house of this woman named Rahab. Rahab lives in the neighborhood. Rahab lives right in the promised land. She's a native. She's right there in the place where God has told them to go and possess. Now let's notice, first of all, who she was. Who's Rahab? Well, Rahab was an outsider. She's living in Jericho. She's a Canaanite. She's not a Jew. The Canaanites were the enemy, right? Remember all this. She's the enemy, right? She has no family background of of a knowledge of the living God. She's lived as a pagan her entire life. She's grown up worshiping idols. That's how she has lived her life. And as a Canaanite, listen, she is one of the people that God has commanded to be exterminated. You say, time out. What? Time out. What what did you just say? God commanded them to be what? Exterminated. Why? Why? You see, Jericho, like the other Canaanite cities, were very wicked. They worshipped idols, as I mentioned. And in their idol worship, they often practiced human sacrifice. These were very wicked people. I think another reason why God commanded for them to be exterminated is because they had plenty of time to repent. If you go back into Genesis when Abraham was walking through the land, what you're going to find is that during Abraham's time, it actually says, this is Genesis 15 and verse 16, it basically says that they had not, that God was aware of their sinning, but they, he was going to give them time to repent. They hadn't sinned enough to be judged yet. That was 400 years ago, right? God gave them 400 years to turn from their sin before he sends Joshua in to destroy them. And I think the third reason why God had them exterminated is because it tells us that, that he, God knew that if the Canaanites were led, left in the promised land, they would lead Israel astray morally and cause them trouble. You see, God knew the hearts of his people and he knew how prone they were to follow the heathens around them. In fact, you actually see that they end up doing some of that in the book of Judges. So that's who she was. Next, notice what she did. Well, it tells us here that that Rahab was a prostitute. 
there's some question about that. Some believe that she was an innkeeper. The Hebrew word there could, could go either way. I, I think what tells us that she was, in fact, a prostitute. If you go to the New Testament and you look at the Greek word that is used to describe her in the New Testament, it's porneo, which, is, which would always refer to a woman of her trade, right? So what we understand here is that she is an outsider in many ways. Not only is she a Canaanite, but she is a woman who has been selling herself Some believe that she started this at just the the young age of 10 years old. It was common, I guess, back in that day for Canaanite parents to prostitute out their young daughters for extra income into the house. We we can't say that for certain. But, But the question, I guess, is why would the spies end up in her house? Why go to the house of a prostitute? Let me give you a couple thoughts, perhaps for cover. I mean, the assumption of why men would be going into her house was exactly why they went into her house so that it would be assumed that they were going in there for her services, if you will, right? And so it was normal for for people to see men and strangers going in and out of her house, so possibly for cover. Possibly they went there for intel. Prostitutes uh, quite often had military officers in her house. What did she know? She lived on the wall. They, maybe it was a good vantage point. I mean, the, the, the intel that they could gather there may have been part of what prompted them to go to her house. As well as I think another reason is it, it, provi- it would provide an easy getaway. She lived on the wall. If they needed to get away, they could go down out a window, down the wall and run for cover. But I would have to say that I think that the reason that the spies end up at this prostitute's house, I think that it was by the providence of God. I believe that. I believe that that God led them to her house. That God was moving in such a way that he brought together these two Hebrew secret agents and this harlot from Canaan. I believe that God knew she lived in the neighborhood and it was his plan that she would help them take the hill. You know, God is able to use the most unsuspecting people to lend tactical support to his people when moving forward to take the hill. God can use strangers. He can use any stranger. Has God ever used a stranger in your life to help you along the way? Somebody didn't even know. You know, the verse that talks about entertaining angels unaware. Anybody have one of those experiences like, I don't know where that person just came and went, but but God, did you just send me an angel? Maybe it was. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to assume, but, but you know, strangers, God can use an enemy. An enemy, and that's what's happening here. God could use the weak of this world. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us. God often chooses the weak of the world. How many of you say, yeah, baby, that's me, right? Right? Do you feel like the weak, the foolish of this world? Yeah, God uses the weak and the foolish. He could use a child. Read Matthew chapter 18, right? God uses oftentimes the most unsuspecting 
people to help his people take the hill. Notice what she believes here. This is awesome. Jumping down to verses 8 through 11, and I didn't read it. This 24, 24 verses. Maybe tonight you go back and read the story. I'm, I'm telling you the story as we go. But in verses 8 through 11, it tells us what she believed. Maybe we should read this part. Let's read it. Before the, women, the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Remember, that was 40 years earlier. And what you did to Shion and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed. Now, something you need to know about the Amorites, these were barbarian people. The, the, the Amorites were considered like undefeatable. They were brutal, brutal, violent people. And Moses, you can go back in in Numbers and you can read about how Moses asked, hey, can we pass through your territory? We don't want to fight. We just need to pass through. And they're like, yeah, not going to happen. And so Shine and Og, they come out to, to prevent them. And Moses is like, all right, you're picking a fight. This is going down. And, and Moses and the, the children of Israel wipe them out, defeat them, right? So what have they heard? They, what, what, what the, the people in Jericho have heard is that God, their God, the Hebrew God has, he opened up the Red Sea. He dried it up so that his people could cross. And then the same God enabled his people to destroy the indestructibles, right? The, the undefeatables, right? I mean, he, he allowed them, he enabled them to defeat the armies in the area that caused the greatest terror. And so if you're sitting in Jericho and you're on the other side of the river and you know that Israel is across the Jordan River and you know that their God opened up the Red Sea and you know that their God helped them defeat armies much greater than theirs, Do you understand why they're shaking in their boots? Do you understand why why they are scared to death? But look at this in verse 11. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. And look what she says. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. You see what's going on here? This pagan idolater, who has no background with God, has heard some things about God and about Israel, and she believes. She has no direct knowledge of any of this. For her, it's all hearsay. It's just news that she has heard. And yet, it tells us that she believes that God, do you see it there? I know that God has given you, the land. Think about that, what she just said. I know that God has given you the land. There's no ifs, there's no perhaps. There's no dubious I hope so's. I know that the Lord has given you this land. How is it that this pagan Canaanite had such confidence in God. Well, here's how. She believes 
that Israel's God is the Lord. She believes that Israel's God is the Lord, the God of heaven and of earth. You see, the faith that she had, as I was thinking this week, you know, you you contrast her faith, this pagan woman's faith, with the faith of Israel 40 years earlier. Think about that. I mean, the people 40 years earlier, that generation that came out of Egypt, think about what they saw. What did they see? They saw God deliver them out of Egypt. They walked out of Egypt with the Egyptians saying, take our stuff, get out of here, right? They, wa- they, they saw the Egyptian army pursuing them, and they were up against the Red Sea. They saw how God protected them, how he came between uh, the Egyptian army and his people. He protected them. And then they saw God open up the Red Sea. I mean, this week we saw on the news, and we've all, I'm sure we've all seen it, we saw the power of the sea, right? There are places in Fort Myers that, that my wife and I, we've been going to for 30 years, like the pier and thing. We have gone there for 30 years. Every summer we would go there and we would walk on that pier and we would sit on that beach and we would walk through Times Square and Fort Myers and shop in there. And you look at the pictures now and it is gone. It is wiped out. The Naples Pier, the pi- it even took the pylons down, right? Totally destroyed. We've, we saw this week the power of the sea. Listen, the God of heaven, our God, opened up that sea, dried it up. How do you, how do you, I mean, it's one thing to open the sea and it's another thing to dry it up, right? I mean, they're going to be walking in wet grass for weeks in Florida, right? But God opened up that sea. He dried it. They walked across the people. For These people saw that. They walked through there and then they saw God provide food for them. He saw, they saw water gush out of a rock. Moses hit the rock, water gushed out of the rock. I mean, think about what they saw. And yet, in Kadesh Barnea, they couldn't help but see the obstacles, the giants, right? The walled cities and think, we can't do it. Fear overtook them, and their faith drowned. Their faith died, and they died in the wilderness. They saw it. Rahab, she's seen none of it. All she knows is what she's been told, and she believes. She believes. She believes that God is the true and living God. Wow. Notice what she desired. 
Look in verses 12 and 13. She says this. She says, Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. Rahab desired God's people to show her kindness. To show her kindness. We'll see that God does that. There's two life lessons I want to give you right here as we think about Rahab, this unsuspecting person that God used. The first life lesson is this. God can use anyone, anywhere, at any time. You know, if you and I had been picking someone God was likely to use, I don't know that Rahab would have been that high on our list. In fact, wouldn't you say that she'd be pretty low on our list? In fact, we might even dare to say, I'm not even sure she'd be on the list anywhere. We'd have a bunch of names from Jericho, you know, people from Jericho. She wouldn't be on the list. But God can use whatever is necessary to accomplish his will, to help his people take the hill. I mean, think of, think of the things that God has used, right? God once used a box, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall, something like that. It was called the ark. And God used an ark, right? God once used a donkey. Think about that. I mean, if God can use a donkey, right? I mean then he should be able to use us. He once used a blind man. He used a prostitute. See, folks, tonight, listen, God can use you and he can use me. Stop telling yourself that God can't use you. Yes, he can use you. 1 Corinthians 1, I alluded to it a moment ago. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as, viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. You know, sometimes we tend to look down on people, especially outsiders, right? Especially people who who aren't from our tribe. I mean, Rahab wasn't from their tribe. We tend to, uh, to look down on folks that are not from here or or just push them aside or kind of give off this you don't belong here kind of a vibe but church we need to change that mindset if it exists this story reminds me that god has more grace than most of us do amen doesn't he god has more grace than i than i do thank god for that thank god that he's god And that his grace is unlimited. Thank God for that. But church, let's mirror his grace and extend that grace to others. Perhaps tonight uh, you're struggling with with guilt. Maybe Maybe you're dealing with broken dreams. 
the way that you hoped something would have worked out and you feel like you've, you've been let down. Listen, the story of how God uses Rahab, a prostitute, man, it offers a renewed hope for us. So you might be sitting here thinking tonight that, that God don't want me. He knows where I've been. He knows what I've done. He knows what I've been doing. I'm here to tell you tonight, listen, it doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter to God. Whatever it is, whatever that thing is that makes you feel that God doesn't want you or can't use you, listen, that's just a tool of Satan. Don't ever say that God can't use you. Why? Because no one is beyond the grace of God. Amen? Can I get a Baptist? Amen? All right. Can I get a Pentecostal? Amen? All right. Right? I mean, yeah. No one's beyond the grace of God. No one. And so, church, tonight, God loves you, and he loves us. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for us. God can use us. The second life lesson is that God uses people to get our attention, speak into our calling, and affirm the power of our God. Think about that. You know, we have faith in God. He at times uses people that we wouldn't otherwise expect. Maybe they don't fit our paradigm at all, but God will use them to stretch, to sustain our faith. And I think also that God uses our faith in the calling to take the hill to reach others and bring them into the fold along on the journey of going to take the hill. That's what's going on in Joshua chapter 2. Unsuspecting people. God uses them as we take the hill. Secondly, God uses unusual circumstances. He uses unsuspecting people and he also uses unusual circumstances to stretch our faith. What are the unusual circumstances in Joshua chapter 2? Well, it's not every day that foreign spies come knocking on your door. Anybody ever had that happen? Not every day. It'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Hi, I'm Bond, James Bond, you know? It'd be kind of cool if James Bond knocked on my door. I don't know what I'd do. I don't know if I'd slam the door and run, get the kids. I don't know. But it'd be kind of cool. But yeah, I mean, it's just not every day. I mean, we watch the movies and we, it seems like a normal occurrence, but it's not. We know that, right? Ahab, uh, Rahab had heard what she heard about Israel, but she never imagined that a, a couple of secret agents from Israel were going to come knocking on her door right? She heard about Israel. She knew they were there, right? She, she heard about this, but she never imagined they would be there at her house. And then after the spies arrived, things get even more interesting. Evidently, the spies did not arrive unnoticed. If you go and you read verses uh, two down to about, about verse number seven, we see what happens there. Evidently, some of the king's men caught wind that they were in town and they went to the king and they said, hey, king, uh, there's some Israelite spies uh, in, in town and, and they've gone to Rahab's house. And so uh, the king obviously would dispatch 
a team to go to her house and to investigate, to try to track them down. Well, when the king shows up, the king's men show up at Rahab's door, Rahab takes and hides them on her roof. You'll read about that in verse number six. She hides them on the roof under some, some uh, flax, some stalks of, uh, of flax. And so this is unusual circumstances for Rahab. It's also unusual circumstances for these two spies. They're in Jericho, right? They're in enemy territory. It's a very dangerous situation. It's a very awkward situation. They're in the home of a, of a prostitute. And if you read the Mosaic law, that's a bad thing. Prostitutes, according to Deuteronomy under the Mosaic law, they were to be burnt to death. That's what they were to do with prostitutes. And here they are in this awkward situation in her home. And now they're being tracked down by the king's CIA, right? And they're in hiding. They're on this rooftop. And they are totally at the mercy of a pagan prostitute. You you tracking with me? These are unusual circumstances. These are things beyond their control. And what I want us to know tonight is that when taking the hill, we can expect our faith to be stretched. We can expect our faith to be stretched, and it's here on the screen, and exercised in ways we cannot predict what would happen. This happens in our own personal lives. Sometimes God uses the situations that we get ourselves into, right? We've all gotten ourselves into situations before. God can use that situation that you got yourself into to stretch your faith. He can use that to exercise your faith. You can't predict what's going to happen. You don't know how this thing's going to turn out, but God can use that to stretch and exercise your faith. Sometimes God uses conditions that are uncomfortable to us. I would say that, that the spies are in an uncomfortable situation, but God used this to stretch their faith. You know, and we have faith in God. He allows circumstances that we can't control so that we have no choice but to trust him. We've all been in that situation, haven't we? I don't like being in that situation. Guys, don't we like to be in control, right? I mean, if I'm in a car... I want to be holding the wheel. What about you? Right? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess there've been times they tell my wife, Hey, would you drive? I'm just tired. I just want to conk out from it, but I want to be holding the wheel. I want to have my foot on the brake. It's probably not a good idea. She's a better driver than I am, but it's just something about having your hand on the wheel. And when it comes to life, oftentimes, man, we just want to have our hand on the wheel. We want to, we want to have some sense of control. And what God does in our lives is he allows us to find ourselves in circumstances that are so unusual, so unpredictable, so far out of our control that we have nothing that we can do other than trust him. And God uses, when we're called to take a hill, man, God oftentimes puts us along the way in situations exactly like that. You can't do anything other than 
look to him and trust him. He brings these types of circumstances into our life. Sometimes crises. I don't like crises. But God allows moments of crises in our life to halt business as usual. Right? Life as usual. And God allows those, that business as usual attitude that we have to, to halt so that we do what, church? So that we look up to him. And we recognize that he's the God in heaven and on earth below. He is the God. He is the true and living God. He causes business as usual to cease so that we stop and look to him and trust him, get our eyes back on him. That's what God is doing here. Well, Rahab runs back downstairs and she answers the door and then she proceeds to to send them away on a wild goose chase, right? She admits seeing them, but she insinuates that they were there uh, for her services, but they had left uh, at nightfall and she lies about their whereabouts. Now, you want to get into a good debate? Just debate Rahab's lie. Right? This is a great dorm room in a Bible college right, or seminary. This makes great dorm room debating. Did, was, did lay, was Rahab justified in her lie? Is it okay to lie? We're not going to get into all that here. I mean, 3,500 years later, reading the text, we're at a luxury, aren't we? I mean, we're sitting back here, armchair and amen. What, what was that all about? Put herself, put yourself in her shoes. Here's what we know. We know that Rahab put her life on the line. Rahab, by doing what she did, standing with the spies against the king of Jericho, she was risking her very life. It shows the extent of her faith. It showed the extent that she wasn't just blah, blah, blah about fearing God and, and, and God's going to give. This was real to her and she was willing to stake her life on it. She risked everything to be on God's side. She chose to trust God in faith rather than being controlled by the fear of the culture around her. And this was a critical moment of decision for her. This is the moment when she turned from her past to find new life. And church, whenever we recognize how great and powerful and awesome God is, I believe we do the same thing. We willingly take courageous risk alongside of God's people to take the hill, to do whatever God is calling us to do. And I think that God's looking for those kind of people. He's looking for people like Rahab who will risk everything to do what God calls us to do. Unsuspecting people, God uses unusual circumstances. And then three, man, when God calls us to move forward, to take the hill he's calling us to, God often uses some unpredictable methods to sustain our faith. This is the end of the story. This is verses 15 down to the end of the chapter. The king's men, they, they believe Rahab's story. And so off they scamper out 
out into the, the highways and byways. They're out there, out in the fields, out in the hills. They are, they've been sent off to go look for the spies. And knowing that the king's men were looking for the spies, actively searching for them, Rahab helps them escape, letting them down by a rope, a scarlet cord through a window. That's verses 15 and 18 if you want to read it. Some scholars have suggested that that scarlet rope may have been the mark of a prostitute and that she lived in the red rope district. But that red rope, that scarlet cord you find throughout the Bible. It's a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. It's a picture of the blood at Passover over the door, right? And anyone inside that house would say, that is what that scarlet cord symbolizes. And just before the spies leave, they work out this plan. The spies and Rahab work out this plan. The first part of the plan was that her house would be identified by this scarlet cord. She had to leave it hung in her window. And so when Israel would come back to defeat the city, they would see that scarlet cord and they would save her and her family. Actually, the, the Hebrew word translated cord or rope more commonly means hope, which is interesting because it's more of a hope than a rope, right? Her hope, when that cord, if it were some type of a symbolic for a prostitute, right, uh, for her services, right, then, then that cord would be her hope of getting customers. But now that cord was her hope of salvation. That was her hope. That when Israel would come back, she would be spared. And so that was the first part of the plan. The second part of the plan was they had to remain in her house. Anyone in her house would be saved. Anyone who left her house would not be spared. The third part of the, of the plan was that the spies would be free from their oath, guaranteeing her protection and her salvation if Rahab exposed their mission. So here's what's going on. Rahab had to trust the spies and the spies had to trust Rahab, right? You you picture it? They had to trust each other. Why? Because Rahab's going to let them down out of the window with with the rope in the basket, right? So they had to trust that she wasn't going to let them halfway down the wall, let them hang there while she went and got the authorities. Like this was all a, a sick joke, right? She had no reason to think that, but, but they had to trust her. They had to get into the basket. When they went up to hide, they, their, their lives were in her hands, if you will. In the same way, Rahab had to trust the spies. I mean, what if the spies went back to Joshua and said, hey, there was this prostitute there and, we, and, we, and she helped us and we committed that, you know, uh, she'll, we'll save her. And what if Joshua would be like, no way, dude. Ain't doing that. God told us to wipe them all out. She's done. I mean, Rahab was trusting the spies and trusting the promise that this would actually be carried out in accordance with their word. So either side just had a promise to hold onto. Well, I want you to understand something. Faith is only faith when it moves beyond the obvious. Think about that. Faith is only faith 
when it moves beyond the obvious, right? I mean, if it's obvious, it's sight. That's not faith. The opposite of faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is sight. It's, I can see it. I, the day is coming when we will be in heaven and we will see Jesus face to face. That's a good spot for an amen. Amen, right? No more pains. Only a couple people having a pain tonight, right? No more aches. I mean, it's no more death. I mean, no more sorrow, right? I mean, it's going to be a good time. We're going to see it. It's not going to take any faith. It's not going to take any faith to believe in Jesus, to believe in heaven, right? It's not going to take any faith at that moment. Why? Because it will be sight. But right now, until it's that obvious, it requires faith on our part. You see, what is faith? Faith is trusting in an unsubstantiated promise. Unsubstantiated. It's a promise, but it's for all we know, until it's sight, we, it's just a promise. And that's where Rahab was, and that's where the, the spies were. This is the reason why we often respond and act with fear instead of faith. Why? Because we know the promise of God, and, and we've all done this, church. We've all done this. We have a problem. That maybe it's a, some particular need, and what do we do? We worry about it. Any, any, anybody with me on that? Any, any other people ever worry about a problem, right? We worry about that. What? We have a, don't you have a promise from the Bible that you can go to and say, well, this is what God said. Yeah, we do. But in that particular matter, the promise has been unsubstantiated. We've seen God answer that. He, he's kept his promise in the past. But in that moment, with that circumstance, it's unsubstantiated as of yet. This is what faith is. Today, we have the word of God. We have the promises of God, but we don't often know the method by which God will fulfill a particular promise. That's where faith comes in. We have the promise. How's God going to take care of it? I don't know. I don't know. What I've noticed, and, and I, those of you have been saved a lot longer than me, back me up on this. But have you ever noticed that God doesn't typically solve problems the same way twice? He doesn't. He doesn't. He always does it a little bit differently. Why? So that we have to trust him, so that we have to operate by faith. We take his promise. We go to his word God is predictable, isn't he? I mean, just think about that statement for a second. Is God predictable? I think he is. Because he doesn't change. Is God predictable when it comes to sin? Yes or no, church? Ah. Out of 10 sins, how many will God judge? All 10. Predictable, right? God is, is predictable. We can go to his word and we can, we can understand who God is. And we can even look back at these Old Testament stories and we can learn about God. And we know that God never changes. However, his methods of working in our lives are unpredictable. He's not unpredictable. The methods he uses to fulfill his promises 
are unpredictable. So what does that mean? We have to actively trust in his trustworthiness. You with me? That's what we do. We trust in his trustworthiness. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's God, and I know that he's trustworthy, so I trust him even though I have no idea how all this pans out. What his method will be, what his timing will be, I don't know. But I know that I can trust God. Well, when the spies return back to Joshua, it says in verses 22 and 23 that they report everything that had happened to them. And in verse 24, underline it if you have your Bible open, the Lord, they say this to Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. You see it? Their faith through that process has been sustained, supported, and stretched. And they come back, God has given us that land. Who'd they hear that from? A pagan prostitute, right? That's who they heard it from. They were absolutely convinced of what God had said he would do. They heard it from the lips of Rahab. They were absolutely convinced. They recognized how clearly God had been preparing the way for them to take the hill, even in the hearts of those living inside of Jericho Church. Here's what I want you to know. God is always faithful to prepare the way for his people. God is faithful to prepare the way for you and your family in life. You can trust him. You can trust him. He's completely trustworthy. And so even when the method seems so unpredictable and it seems so easy to fear, move from fear to faith and trust the trustworthy God, that God in his timing and in in his unique way, he will always 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100, God will always keep his word. Make sure you have a promise that you can go to the Bible and that it wasn't made to somebody else. But when you have one, you know that God will always keep his word. Well, good news, Joshua later accepts the deal that that the spies had made with Rahab and, and her family is spared God honored Rahab's faith. He accepted her new allegiance. She could have trusted in the walls of Jericho to shelter her, but instead she trusted in the hand of God. And so this first stage, Joshua chapters two of Israel's conquest to take the hill, you know what it was? It was a mission of mercy. That's what it was. And here's what I believe. I believe that as we as a church move forward to take the hill, God wants us to be a part of this mission of mercy in our community and with other believers. What I've been praying for some time, for months, is I began praying months ago, I think about in uh, February or March, that God would begin stirring up the hearts of the people in the neighborhood, that the Holy Spirit would stir up the hearts of, because there's believers here. There are, that God would begin stirring up their hearts and bringing us together to take the hill together. Some of them are sitting right here tonight. These, these are folks that, that are the answer to that prayer. And there are others. What I'm asking for us to do, take the hill together, not to be paralyzed by fear. We're going to look to God. We're going to continue to ask him for wisdom. And we're, con- we're going to continue to gather information 
We're not going to be foolish. We're going to look at the facts around us. And we're going to try to do what is wise and what is prudent and not be foolish. And so we, what do we do? We pray together for divine wisdom. That God would guide us and direct us together as we move forward to take the hill. But we're doing so wisely, cautiously. We do this together. I got to tell you as I wrap this up, the rest of the story. You know, when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you know, what is Hebrews chapter 11? It's the, it's the great hall of faith in the Bible, right? Did you know that Rahab, this harlot, is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Here's what it says about her. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Here's what's shocking about it to me. You know who's not mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Joshua. He's not in there. Let that sink in. It wasn't their leader. It wasn't Joshua. He's not in the Hebrew hall of faith. It is a Gentile pagan woman that God used. What does that mean? It means it's not about the leaders per se. It is about our faith. Where is your faith? Who is your God, right? That's what it's about. If God could use Rahab, God can use us. He can use any of us. He can use all of us. Probably the coolest thing that you see in the New Testament as you read, don't you love reading genealogies? Anybody like you're a big genealogy buff and you're like, Whoa, it's six o'clock in the morning. Let's go to the genealogies. No, nobody does that. But you read the Matthew genealogy, Jesus. Do you know that you find Rahab's name in there? Rahab, turns out, became the great-grandmother of King David. Isn't that amazing? She's one of only five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. You see, if the ancient land of Israel had a Mount Rushmore, I'd have to say that she's a good contender. Her face would probably be on it. Rahab, dirty, stained by the world in her own sinfulness, but God loved her. And God wanted to save her. And God wanted for her to be a part. You see, she wasn't only integral to to Israel taking the hill, the land of Canaan. She was integral to the coming of the Messiah. She's one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. What's that tell us? It tells us that we have a good and a gracious God, and that if we will put our hands, our life in the hands of God, He can do anything.